0: Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, we're looking at the realities of the very first Thanksgiving with historian and best-selling author Bill Federer. Each year, SWRC presents its Prophecy Calendar. This special resource benefits you and the prisoners we serve through our Onesimus Prison Outreach Ministry. This year, the calendar is truly spectacular with stunning pictures from the Holy Land and added bonuses that I know you'll enjoy. Southwest Radio Ministries creates this unique calendar filled with scripture, comfort and inspiration from God's word. We also partner with each of you who purchase a calendar to encourage prisoners in our Onesimus prison ministry. For every calendar you order, a calendar will be given to a prisoner free of charge. Order your calendar and encourage a prisoner. Calendars are ready to ship today Order yours when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can order on our website, swrc.com. As we prepare for Thanksgiving, historian Bill Federer is here to share what the first Thanksgiving was really like and why what the pilgrims did in coming to the new world is so important for you and me today
1: there's a very important backstory that goes with Thanksgiving. We don't want to miss it or ignore it. I have in my hand a really helpful book. It's titled The Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It by William J. Federer. The author Bill Federer is on the phone with me right now. Bill, happy Thanksgiving to you and thank you so much for being on the show, especially on Thanksgiving Day. Hey Larry, great to be with you. There is a tremendous backstory, in fact, I'm looking at the table of contents here, the idea of self-government, squanto, change in direction of power, all of these things. Tell us about Thanksgiving and help us to see it in proper historical and biblical perspective.
2: Sure. The situation begins where Europe was all Catholic, and then there was an Islamic invasion in 1529, with 100,000 Muslims surrounding Vienna, Austria, under Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. The situation was that the Muslims had conquered Egypt, which used to be Christian, evangelized by Mark, that wrote the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Egypt was Christian, but conquered by Islam. All of North Africa used to be Christian. St. Augustine of Hippo was from Carthage, and then they took it over and turned it into Tunisia. They conquered all of Spain, which was Christian, right? They are stopped outside of of Paris, and then they conquer the Holy Land. Syria used to be completely Christian until it was conquered by Islam. And then Turkey, it used to all be Christian. All seven churches mentioned the Book of Revelation are wiped out. And then they conquered Constantinople in 1453, cutting off the land routes to India, and that's when Columbus set sail looking for a sea route. But finally, they're at the gates of Vienna in 1529. And so the king of Spain is fighting them, fighting them. And in the middle of all this, Martin Luther starts the Reformation in 1517. And so the king of Spain is trying to smash the Reformation and trying to stop the Islamic invasion. He cannot do both. And so he decides to strike a deal with the Protestants. It's called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. And this treaty had enormous repercussions because it let every king decide what's going to be believed in his kingdom. Mm. Let's just work together against this Islamic invasion. And so, in the next century, different kings believed different things. And you had England was Anglican, Scotland was Presbyterian, Holland was Dutch Reformed, Northern Germany and Sweden were Lutheran, Switzerland, Calvinist, Greece was Greek Orthodox, Russia was Orthodox, and of course, Italy, Spain, France, Austria, Poland stayed Catholic. But it was one denomination per country, and you had to believe the way your king did. If you didn't, you were persecuted. And so there was mass migration of people shifting in Europe from one country to another and spilling over and founding colonies in America. And so let's zoom in on what happened in England. Their king, Henry VIII, was married to Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of the king of Spain. And after 18 years, she does not have a son. She has a daughter, Mary, but not a son, and Henry VIII wants a son, so he decides to divorce Catherine of Aragon. The Pope will not recognize the divorce, because she is, after all, the daughter of the King of Spain, the most powerful guy in the world. And in 1527, the King of Spain's army invaded Rome and imprisoned the Pope for six months. Hmm. And so the Pope's not in any hurry to get on the wrong side of Spain, so he says no to Henry's divorce. Henry says, you know what, I'm far enough away from Rome, I'm just going to declare myself my own Pope. He starts the Church of England, puts himself on as the head, and he goes on to have six wives. And their fates were divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. So Henry VIII was not a really nice guy to be married to. Hmm. Well, his advisors suggested to him that if he was serious about breaking from Rome, he should stop using that old Latin Bible, get himself an English Bible. Then people will look to England for their spiritual heritage and not Italy. They said that the German princes have Martin Luther's German Bible. That helped them to break from Rome. He needs an English Bible. So Henry VIII says, fine, get me one. Well, it just so happened a couple of years earlier, Henry VIII, had William Tyndall burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into English. Mm. And now, he wants an English Bible. William Tyndall's last words before he was martyred was, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Mm. And so now the king wants this English Bible. They take William Tyndall's work and polish it up, and they call it the Great Bible. And Henry VIII orders a copy of it placed in every church in England. Wow. And he dusts his hand, And he says, that's it. We have broken from Rome. But something unexpected happened. People actually began to read the Bible and began to compare what's in it to this king divorcing and beheading his wives and claiming to be the head of Christ's church on earth. And so a group starts that wants to purify the Church of England, and they are nicknamed the Puritans. The king does not think he needs any purifying, so he persecutes them. And then there's another group that said it's beyond hope of terrifying. We are going to separate ourselves. They called themselves separatists. We call them pilgrims. And so these separatists meet in barns and basements by candlelight and they're meeting in the home of William Brewster, who's, you know, a fairly wealthy guy, has a big manor estate out in the country. And they would get raided. They would get arrested having a meeting without approval of the government. Mm. They had passed what's called the Conventical Act. comes from the word covenant, where Jesus said, where two or three gather gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst. So this Conventical Act said if you have five or more people meeting and you're talking religion and you have not gotten pre-approval from the government, you are criminals. Mm. And then they passed the Five Mile Act. If you're caught preaching within five miles of a town, without pre-approval of the government. You're criminals. And they'll drag you before the star chamber. And they'll brand you on the face as a heretic and cut off your ear. So this was what was going on. One of the early Baptist founders was John Merton. And he was writing pamphlets. And the king didn't like his pamphlets. And so he arrested him. And he's in prison. They did not feed you in the English prison. And so he had a friend that brought him a bottle of milk, and instead of a cork, it had a wad of paper. And when the guard wasn't around, he pulls off the wad of paper and unfolds it, and he takes a splinter, dips it in the milk, and he writes out his pamphlets. The milk dries, it's clear, and he sticks it in the empty bottle. The guard takes it, his friend comes and takes it, and the friend unfolds it and holds it above a candle. And the heat of the candle turns the milk brown. They can read what he wrote, and he type that in there. For his pamphlets and the king's like how does he get to get stuff out of here and the early baptists call it the milk of the word <laughs> and so there was another early baptist founder in england named thomas hellwise and he's arrested he's put in the newgate prison which was such a notorious prison people were dying all the time in there that later you know in the 1800s they got free from that the, the people of london tore the newgate prison down because it had such bad memories But here is Thomas Hellwise. He writes a pamphlet in 1612, and it says, The king is a mortal man and not God. Mm. Therefore, he should not set up spiritual lords over us and have these star chamber, you know, where they twist your arm and brand you on the face as a heretic type thing. He says, I'm paraphrasing, if the king can stand next to you on the day of judgment and answer for your conscience, fine, believe whatever the king tells you to believe. But if the king is not going to be there on the day of judgment... (laughs) You're accountable to God for your own conscience. Amen. Well, the king didn't like that type of stuff, and so they put him in jail where he died. So a bunch of these pilgrim separatists sell their land, and they buy a ticket on a ship, and they're about to take off when the captain robs them and turns them over to the police as heretics, and they're put in jail. So another group of these pilgrim separatists sell their land, and arrange for a Dutch ship to sail along the coast of England. And they would row out on rowboats and get on the boat and sail away. Well, the pilgrims show up a day early. And they're in these rowboats, and it's wavy, and, you know, all day long. And these kids are getting sick. And the, the women say, can we just wait on shore? And so they do. And finally the Dutch ship come, and the men roll out there, and they're putting all the stuff on it. And somebody snitched the British soldiers come over the hill and capture the women and children. And the Dutch captain says, I don't have any army here. Uh, We're leaving. And he pulls anchor and sails away with the men. And you can imagine that boat getting smaller and smaller until it disappears. And for two years, they pass these women and children from one court in England to another. Simply for conscience sake. Finally, the one judge says, you really didn't do anything wrong. Go home. (laughs) And they go, duh, we sold our homes. We don't have... So just to get them out of their hair, they put them on a boat, send them over to England, and they finally find out where their husbands are, so there's a happy ending to that chapter. They're in Holland for 12 years. Spain's threatened to attack Holland, so they decide to flee again. And this time they're going to go to Jamestown, which had been started 14 years earlier. And they go to England, they get on a ship, the godspeed, but it doesn't speed very well. It starts leaking, and they try to patch it up, it leaks again, then they have to downsize and they get on the Mayflower, but they've wasted a lot of time and food. And now they're sailing, it was a 66 day journey, but they get over here in November and it's stormy. One of the pilgrims is thrown overboard, but they fish him back in, John Howland. It's a four foot high between deck space that they're pretty well confined to for 66 days. But they get to the shores of America and they're 500 miles away from Jamestown. Mm -hmm. And they try sailing down the coast, but it's too stormy. They almost sink. There's the shoals, which is sandbars. If you've ever been to a beach that's shallow and you can walk a 100 yards and it only comes up to your waist, that's sort of the way it is off of Cape Cod. You can be a quarter mile away from shore and there's a sandbar and the boat gets stuck and in the storm. It batters the boat to pieces. And so the pilgrims are in a storm. They almost sink. The captain says, it is too dangerous to sail. And, you know, it's late November. He goes back to Plymouth Rock. And says, everyone off the boat. You're going to have to stay here. And these pilgrims are like, uh, we got a question. Who is going to be in charge? Mm-hmm. There's no king appointed person in our group. We were going to go to Jamestown, submit to the king's government. And so they do something unique. They do the Mayflower Compact, which is them creating their own government. We, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together to form a civil body politic. Mm-hmm. To enact just and equal laws that shall be thought most meet, unto which we promise all due submission. Simple, revolutionary. It was a polarity change in the flow of power. Instead of top down ruled by kings, it's bottom up ruled by we. And then where did they get this idea? From their pastor, John Robinson. He was not an Anglican king appointed pastor, he was one of these Congregationalist pastors, which has a church model that everybody in the congregation is supposed to be involved in ministry somehow. And it's the pastor's job to teach them to have their own relationship with God. pastor teaches them God's Word so they know how God moved in the past because he's perfect, he doesn't change. If he's going to do anything in the future, it's got to line up with what he did in the past so you don't get off into crazy stuff, right? And then the church is like a farm team for the ministry. He that's faithful in the very little, gets entrusted with some more and some more. Right? So you work in the nursery, then you work with the children's church, then you work with the junior high, until finally you can get out and replicate and the body of Christ can grow. Hmm. And so this is a congregational form of church government, and they learned it from their pastor, John Robinson. They simply took their church government and they made it their pilgrim government. Wow! Everybody's involved in church. Everybody's involved in the community.
1: What you're saying is that the Bible has implications for society, for government, for every aspect of life, not just for the, what should I say, one hour between 11 and 12 on Sunday, but it affects and impacts everything that we do.
2: Yeah, that's the way they saw it. Yeah, wow. And so that became the model for the New England colonies, and they called them town hall meetings. Mm. When the revolution happened, the military governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Gage, wanted to outlaw town hall meetings. He <laughs> said, well, we don't need people meeting together and passing resolution. Just do what the king tells you to do. The other interesting story with the pilgrims is the Squanto story. The Spaniards had claimed all the new world, For about a century, right? 1492 is when Columbus discovers it. And then you got the 1565, a bunch of French Protestants called Huguenots tried to settle Florida, Jacksonville, Florida. They called it Fort Caroline. And the Spanish found out about it and butchered all the men and took the women and children away. Called the Spanish Maine. Nobody wanted to get anywhere close where Spain was. But finally, the Spanish Armada was sunk in 1588. They were going to invade England and bring them back under their control, and a hurricane comes and destroys the Spanish Armada. And so the other different countries want to try to start settlements. France settles New France, which is Canada, and Vermont. And the Dutch settled New Amsterdam, which became New York. And the Swedes settled New Sweden, which became Delaware and New Jersey. And and then, of course, the English settled Virginia and New England. Up and down the coast of America, the other countries are afraid to make settlements because they're afraid Spain will wipe them out like they did around Jacksonville, Florida. You had the different European ships, French and Dutch, English would sail up and down the coast of America, and they would lure the Indians on board, lock them below deck, take them to Spain, sell them into slavery, and that's what happened to Squanto. He was one of these Indians. The story is he was purchased by some monks and given his freedom. And so he had possibly a exposure to Christianity Mm. through this. And then he hitchhikes his way across Europe to England, to London. And he's in London for years. He's working jobs. And then he finds a fishing company that can drop him off in Newfoundland. And then he gets dropped off again at Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And he gets off the boat only to find that his entire tribe was dead. Mm. A plague had wiped them out. And, interestingly enough, had he not been kidnapped, he most certainly would have died, too, in the plague. William Bradford, in the history of the Plymouth Settlement, documents that about two or three years earlier, a French ship had shipwrecked at Cape Cod. The sailors got ashore. The Indians never left watching them and dogging them till they got the advantage of them and killed them all but three or four, Mm. whom they sent from one sachem chief to another, making sport with them, using them worse than slaves. Well, evidently, they must have had some illness, and the Indians caught it and didn't have immunity, and it wiped out the whole tribe. And so when the pilgrims land, they land at Cape Cod. They land at the one spot on the eastern seaboard that's not claimed by any other tribe. So great was the plague that the other tribes refused to take over that land. They said the Great Spirit had driven them out. And so the pilgrims land there. The first winter, half of the pilgrims die. I think only five couples retained their original spouses. And the next spring, the widows would marry the widowers and and so forth. But they would not have survived. But in the spring of 1621, out of the woods comes an Indian who speaks to them in broken English. And then he tells them of another Indian named Squanto, and a couple days later, Squanto shows up, and he speaks to them in perfect English. Wow. And you can imagine him walking out of the woods with his loincloth and, <laughs> and saying, oh, yeah, you guys from England, I used to live there. Yeah, St. <laughs> Paul's Chapel and down on the you know, Wharf Street and all this kind of stuff. And, oh, here? I grew up here. I know this area like the back of my hand. And Squanto showed them where the springs were, where they could get fresh water. He mm-hmm. showed them how to plant corn. They said, we tried that. He goes, no, you got to take a dead fish and put it over the corn kernel and guard it to keep the wolves away. And then it decomposes and fertilizes the soil. You get a nice stalk. And then he showed them how to take the corn, put it in a pot, and shake it over a fire and make popcorn. Mm. And he teaches them how to catch beaver. William Bradford says, neither was there a man among us who had ever seen a beaver skin until they were shown how to catch him by squanto. He taught them how to go down to the riverbank, take off their shoes, squeegee in the mud, and catch eels, and they would eat them and clams and so forth. But most of all, Squanto put them on good terms with the other Indian tribes because he was their interpreter. He knew how to speak English. He knew how to speak the Indian languages. William Bradford says he was a special instrument sent of God for their good beyond their expectations. Wow. And so he was with them all this time, and then... He arranges for that first Thanksgiving, right? So the Indians come, they bring their deer. The turkey came from the American Indians, their cranberry. And, of course, then the pilgrims had their stuff. And the first Thanksgiving went on for a day. At the end of the day, the Indians roll up in their blankets on the ground. And the next morning, they're still there. It goes on for a second day. And then they go roll up in their blankets. And then they wake up the next day, and it goes on for a third day. And the boys are doing, you know, foot races and hand wrestling and stuff like that. This was a providential occurrence. The Thanksgiving. A couple of sources. The Pilgrims were in Leiden, Holland, and that was a city where they drove out Spain, and they had an annual day of Thanksgiving because the Spanish had done what's called the Spanish Furies in the 1570s, where they like butchered tens of thousands of these Dutch Protestants. Right. And so once they drove them out, they would have an annual day of Thanksgiving. And in Leiden, Holland, were Jews, and they had a Jew that taught. Hebrew at the University at Leiden, William Brewster, and Edward Winslow, these different pilgrim fathers were there. And so the pilgrims began to associate with the Jews, and they would write things like, you escaped the Pharaoh, we escaped the king of England. You crossed the Red Sea, we crossed the English Channel. You went into your promised land, we're looking for our promised land. And so they taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard. Wow. And they looked back to this period called the Hebrew Republic, that first 400-year period when Israel was out of Egypt before they got King Saul and so that was the model. William Bradford says that Squanto was helping them sail around the shoals of Cape Cod doing some exploring and then a storm came up out of nowhere. It was freezing rain and they tried to put in at a little island. He says that it was so stormy and they all got soaked and they tried building a little makeshift shelter and He said, here Squanto fell ill of Indian fever, Mm. bleeding much at the nose, which the Indians take for a symptom of death. He bequeathed several of his belongings to his English friends, and then he prayed that Governor Bradford would pray for him that he might go to the Englishman's God in heaven. Mm. The Englishmen were the pilgrims. The pilgrims were Christians. And so they were living their Christian faith in front of them. And here he is dying. He says, I want to go to your God. <laughs> I wow. believe that they led him into prayer and salvation and that he's saved.
1: Wow.
2: The fascinating story of Squanto, this providential person. And the application is sometimes you go through a time in your life where you're betrayed and you're sold into slavery and you have terrible things happening and you just want to get back to your family. And then you're disappointed and it looks like your life is over and it's like, what happened? But yet God can use you to minister and help rescue people and be a strength and a comfort to them, the same way that Squanto, in his trials, was able to be the one to rescue the pilgrims.
1: Didn't the pilgrims try communism? Nobody asks
2: who paid for the pilgrim boat ride. They didn't have any money. They had gone to some rich investors who put up the money, and the investors started a company. It's called the London Company, and they wrote bylaws for the company. And the bylaws said that everything would be held in common. Everything gained by cooking, hunting, fishing, trading should go into ye common stock. And everyone's livelihood and provisions and food should come out of ye common stock. And William Bradford said they tried it, but he says this proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato, that the owning of things in common would make men happy as if they were wiser than God. He says that communal ownership of property breeded much confusion. He says the young man was upset that he was doing twice as much work as the old guy, but got paid the same. Hmm. The old guy considered it a dishonor to be ranked in labor with the younger and humbler ones, considered it an indignity. And the women objected to having to wash other men's clothes. Hmm. And nobody wanted to go out and plant. And William Bradford said they almost starved it, and so they had to come up with another way. And so after much discussion, it was decided that every family should get their own parcel of land and plant corn. He says, this made all hands more industrious, so that much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to plant corn while before they would allege weakness and inability and to have forced them would have been considered great oppression. So here we had the pilgrims saying, oh, yeah, we'll try this owning everything in common. It didn't work. They almost starved to death. They scrapped it. They gave everybody their own plot of land, and they became prosperous. And then you could voluntarily give away some of your stuff to take care of your neighbor, rather than having these bylaws forcibly taking it away. Wow. So all these stories are in the book, yes. the treacherous world of the 16th century and how the pilgrims escaped it.
1: I'm looking at the book right now and after that you say the prequel to America's freedom and that's what's so so much under attack today. When I think of our own government, when I think of vaccine mandates and firing people left and right, I think we need to go back to our history. We need to throw out the woke crowd. They don't love us at all. They hate us and I think we need to say MAGA, make American great again, and that's the key. And once we see and understand our history and see how God is involved in our history, I think we can say, well, we're ready now for revival. If we confess our sins, turn to God, follow Second Chronicles 7:14. Watch God work. Well, Bill, I really appreciate this. You have a way of telling history with a passion. You're not a dull history teacher. Bill Federer, what a great blessing. God bless your ministry. And friends, happy Thanksgiving to all of you.
0: Discover the facts you've been missing from the Pilgrim's Thanksgiving story in Bill Federer's book, The Treacherous World of the 16th Century, and how the pilgrims escaped it. If you like speaking your views, participating in politics, and sharing your faith without fear of government persecution, you will be fascinated by the compelling pilgrim experience told from an amazing world perspective. Order The Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It and know the truth. Order your copy today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's one 800 652 1-1-4-4. or you can order this outstanding book at our website swrc.com as we're getting closer to the Christmas season be sure and visit the gift section of our website swrc.com gifts from Israel as well as books and DVDs that will inform and encourage your family and friends visit swrc.com today that's swrc. Com. Friends, if you have a prayer need, would you let us pray for you? We consider it an honor to pray with you. Prayer requests come in from all over the country through the mail, on the phone, and now through a special email address. Prayer at swrc.com. That's prayer at swrc.com. Or you can always just give us a call, one 800 652 1144 That's one 800 Tomorrow, staff evangelist Josh Davis will share a special Thanksgiving Day message. So be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com